Welcome to season two of The Reflection. We started this series in March 2020 after the announcement of the lockdown and COVID-19 began to change the world. For 20 weeks, academics, activists and journalists joined us to discuss everything from the UK government's mishandling of the pandemic, the growth of conspiracies, Black Lives Matter and what it was like to bear witness to the growth of existing local and global inequalities. For this season, our guests will be reflecting on the political climate of the past year and we'll be talking to authors who have released books in 2020 concerning matters of race and class. This is a trigger warning. This episode, at times, contains conversations and sensitive material that people may find difficult to listen to. Welcome to another episode of our Reflection Series, Series 2, where we bring back previous guests to talk about the last year. We are really excited today to bring onto the show our friend, alumni and all-round legend, Professor Alison Phipps. <laughs> who was at Sussex University but is now about to start her new professor staff (laughs) (laughs) professor staff at Newcastle University in the sociology department hello Alison hello hi Alison (laughs) we're excited for this episode of Alison because when Alison first came on the show to talk about Mm -hmm. the trouble with mainstream feminism was it was an alternative to women's hour episode Mm -hmm. but as a treaty I thought you <laughs> I brought you onto a feminist episode of the podcast. How'd you feel? Do you know what, right? I missed out. Everyone was, everyone was talking about it. Everyone's so happy. Even George came back. It was like, Alison's lovely. Yeah. <laughs> oh, <laughs> so George is lovely. <laughs> Thanks for having me. It's so lovely. I just, I listen to you all the time. All the time. That's and mad. if I'm having That's a weird. bad day, I put on Surviving Society and you are just... Like, so clever, but also such lovely people. It just lifts me up every time. Oh, <laughs> that's, that's nice. so nice, isn't it? <laughs> Look at George. Is, <laughs> George <laughs> listeners, George is crying in the studio. Yeah. Now. Um, but Alison, I guess just to sort of return to when we recorded together, it was in October 2019 and I came down to Sussex and I had read book Me Not You it had not been published yet our conversation centred around dispelling myths around feminism talking about history and genealogy of feminism particularly in both the UK and global context. But ultimately, one of the things that we really, really focused on was your ideas around political whiteness Mm -hmm. um, and also feminism or white feminism's role in carceral logics and how that was mapping onto the politics of the present. I found the book so inspiring. I find you so inspiring. I think you helped me answer a lot of personal and also more structural questions that I had about feminism and my complicated relationship with it. Um, And I know a lot of people got a lot out of that episode. One of the things we want to talk about in this episode is it would be really good to give the listeners a reminder of some of your arguments in the book, but also we want to focus on what happened after the book went out into the public and some of the things that you've been dealing with, but also some of the, maybe some of the positive things as well that have happened Mm. post the book. So that sounds great. (laughs) And I have to say it was the first interview I did on the book um, and it was such a lovely way to start. It just set such a positive tone for the whole process. So I used political whiteness. I mean, there was a lot of discussion of white feminism 
kind of emerging at the time. And obviously there's a lot more now. But I use political whiteness partly because the book was kind of written after the conglomeration of Brexit, Trump, Me Too, Black Lives Matter, not the kind of the first Black Lives Matter, but there was a resurgence of protest around that time as well. And I just started to notice continuities between white feminism and more kind of reactionary politics that were dominated by white people. So I started to think about kind of what underpins all of these types of politics. So I argued in the book that this is kind of something called political whiteness, which I'm not sure I'll continue to use, actually. And we'll, we can talk about oh, that after. Okay. Because I'm a little bit worried that it gets me a little bit close to whiteness studies, Robin right. D'Angelo territory, which I really don't want to kind of go near. But I use political whiteness to kind of talk about these dynamics, which are a sort of narcissism, which is a centering of the kind of white experience within feminism. It's a centering of the experiences of bourgeois white women and often the kind of victimized experiences of those women. And then a kind of alertness to threat, which you can see very much in white feminism. I remember one of the articles about Me Too um, in The Guardian had the headline, Um, women live under threat, not just some of the time, but all of the time. So this kind of threatened female body, which if you contextualize that in history is a white body because the threatened female body is a white body built on that, a sort of will to power, which in white women's case is exercised by proxy via normally the criminal punishment system um, or sometimes kind of via the institution. Um, But the thing was, I was kind of noticing that that sort of echoed some of the stuff that I was seeing in Brexit, you know, this idea of white people under threat, you know, this idea of kind of keeping the others out and this idea that some people are disposable. Um, And what I argue in the book is that mainstream feminism effectively positions more marginalized people, especially black people and other people of color as disposable because of its political program. So it advocates for more criminal punishment or kind of expelling bad men from institutions and elite industries but not really thinking about, well, where do they go next? So it almost outsources those harassers in that way. Um, And then I argued that it's a short step from that. It's a short step from positioning marginalised people as disposable to kind of treating them as enemies when they get in the way. Um, And that's what the more reactionary trans and sex worker exclusionary feminism does. So the narcissism kind of becomes not just a centering of white women's experiences, but uh, my victimization is the most important thing. So I will see all other liberation movements as a personal attack on me. If you criticize my politics, then you're denying my victimhood. So that's a very threatened position and a very defensive position, which then develops quite a vicious kind of mode of operation. So the will to power becomes quite extreme. And, you know, if we look at trans exclusionary feminism in particular, it's become like like Gamergate. I mean, they're just, you know, completely relentless and they're so horrible because a lot of people look at the trans exclusionary feminisms and say they're not feminists. That's not feminism. And I think it is because I think there's a long history in white feminism of throwing more marginalized people under the bus, of policing the border and of actively doing harm, you know, in different ways. So I think, you know, we have to sort of own that and reckon with that. Um, as white women, if we're going to understand how to make mainstream feminism and white feminism better. 
deep, man. Like, man, so I'm just thinking, my, my brain's going like, click, 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 to try to take it all in. It's, no, it's so powerful, isn't it? So when you're looking at whiteness in those terms, it's not really touching the structure. It's exercising where it sees the problem, but it's leaving the structure in place. So is mainstream feminism, is it about maintaining the status quo, mm-hmm. not really about liberation for all, just about yes. for this one group? Completely. And I think that, you know, I mean, mainstream feminism has a long history of demanding equality within the status quo. Mm. It's what kind of Nancy Fraser and and Tithi Bhattacharya call equal opportunity domination. Mm. Um, And in the book, I talk about that in relation to Game of Thrones, um, which was quite fun for me to write. (laughs) It was. It's so Um, good. It's so good. (laughs) I love that, But I think what we do is we try to use the right hand of patriarchy against the left. You know, we try to use... Um, the capitalist system against itself. We try to use the kind of race, racial capitalist system against itself. And we end up operating as clients of that system um, rather than as people who are trying to dismantle that system. And I think that's because um, class privileged white women are to a large extent quite comfortable within the system. Um, and we don't have to engage with who are we marking as disposable because it's not really a question that arises in our lives very often, you know, might we be disposable? And of course we all are, Mm. you know, at the end of the day, but for, for white people like me, that doesn't often come into your consciousness. Although I think it probably did for, you know, at least some of us during COVID Mm. because it was so clear that we're all disposable at the end of the day. So is the question then, is it a case of imagination? Yes. How do you imagine when you can't see anything else but the system? How can you picture an alternative? I think it's so difficult. And I think it's so difficult for us to ma- to imagine outside this system. And I think there's probably something about neoliberal capitalism as well that encourages us all to become kind of clients of the system, if we possibly can, and mm. kind of positions participation as consumption in ways that kind of really infiltrate our consciousness. I think it's really hard to imagine alternatives. But I do think that white feminism especially has not really tried to imagine alternatives um, and I think that other forms of feminism have got further in that project than we probably have. I mean, I like, I mean, Lola, obviously, Lola Olufemi writes a lot about imagination. And I think that her work is so inspiring, drawing from different forms of cultural production, art, you know, feminists who've drawn from science fiction. I think we kind of have to, you know, as Mariam Carver would say, try everything. Ask for all the things as well. It's Lola that says that, ask for everything. Mm. Ask for all the things, exactly. And you think big and act small. At the end of the book, I do do a little thought experiment where I imagine what a world without sexual violence would be Mm. or could be. And obviously that is a utopia that we may never live in. But I think you can use that as kind of a blueprint or as a map to kind of work backwards from um, in quite practical ways, actually, to sort of evaluate then what do you want to do next? What are some small things that you could do? Or how do I know that this small thing I want to do is moving me in the right direction or is not kind of causing more harm than good? We don't always get it right, of course. Um, but I think it's it's about that as well. It's about kind of learning through doing doing lots of little experiments because you kind of, once you start to divest from these systems, I think, you know, other possibilities might open up. But it's so hard. It's so hard to imagine different. One of the things that I didn't say in our the first episode we did together, Alison, but I, I kind of wish I had now, but I'm going to say it now. I feel like the book, Me Not You, is almost like the, hang on, when was Beyond the Pale? When was Ron Ware's Beyond the Pale? Oh. 1992. 92, I think. Yeah. yeah. So it's nearly 30 years. So 
it really speaks to some of the things that Ron was talking about then. And but like has this it kind of shows how the neoliberalism has intensified this. And like I feel like that there's like a real accompaniment into how you were both spoken about this type of feminism that reproduces castle logics that become that are racist, essentially. Mm, very, yeah. Yeah. yeah, that's yeah. a very big compliment as well. Yes, because one is amazing, and yeah. Beyond the Pale is amazing, and much more scholarly than my book. Beyond the Pale is brilliant, but I see them as very much speaking oh. to each other, and I'm sure I'm sure one would say the same as well. I think it really, really is powerful stuff. So we have the conversation. Mm-hmm. COVID nineteen hits in March. Yes. The book comes out not long after the lockdown and I remember watching your launch because your launch was obviously supposed to be in person I remember watching your launch online and just being like obviously we had to lock down to keep everyone safe but I remember being so sad for you because it was just such a it's just such an emancipatory piece of text I was like oh my god this like the launch of this is gonna be incredible like it's gonna be amazing so that must have been really hard but equally like you did you did a lot of promotion of the book I did. Yeah. I mean, I don't, I don't know. I feel very, you, you know, I feel kind of mixed about it because it was such an awful time. I mean, I don't yeah. want to be like, Oh, I couldn't even launch my book. What a terrible no. thing. For me. Mm-hmm. You know? Um, so it, yeah, I mean, it was a very odd time to be bringing a book out, but having said that, actually, I probably did more than I would have done if I'd been doing things in person because I've got two young kids and traveling around is really, really kind of complex and I was able to zoom into all kinds of different events and and speak with people that I didn't have a chance to wouldn't have had a chance to speak with kind of otherwise um so yeah I don't know it was it was a very mixed time I don't quite know how I managed to do as much as I did given that I was homeschooling two children and you know and everything was in chaos but um, I think you just get on with it, don't you? Lots of people were getting on with a lot more. Part of this series has been talking to people like yourself that brought out books at this time and like yeah. the practicalities of doing that, but also the politics of that time. Like a key reason why we wanted to return to this season was because so many of those books that, that we discussed and analysed in that time have give us so many lessons and was, had presented so many warnings about what we're in now. And I think um, your book does that. Yeah, I, I, I agree with Chantel. I think when there's stuff going on in the world mm. and everyone can feel it, but only certain people can like contextualise it and and give it words and give it life. And yeah. I think your book's one of, the, one of the ones that does that. And also like Joy White's book, you kind of give form yeah. to what's going on right now about a particular issue. And it's it, I think that's what, when I read your book, I was like, oh, oh yeah, sick. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, it, and I think also like, it must have been difficult to like talk about this work that you had produced um, before the pandemic and then talking about it in lockdown. Everything's going on. It's all a bit of a madness. But the books that came out during that time that cover things like race, class, feminism have been, for me, have been like companion pieces to get me through. Like we talk about like the conversations that we had during the lockdown mm-hmm. at that time. Like how did we do it? And it's like actually these books were really like ho- like presented hopeful possibilities in but times of crisis. But it gives voice to what you're thinking though. Yeah. Like, the idea that there's a kind of a feeling that's going around the zeitgeist but how do you give that form and like when you, like your text does that it gives it form and you think ah oh, so that's what's going on and you can see this movement mm-hmm. like me too 
I think most people in my gym, they just see like Harvey Weinstein going going to prison, and that, yeah. that that's the movement. That's what that's that's, that's yeah. what they see, but they don't really understand what's going on beyond that. And I think mm. it's drawing attention. It's drawing attention to that. It's important. Mm. Mm. I'm so glad if it did that. You know, I'm mm. so I'm so glad if it did manage to kind of draw some threads mm. together. I mean, Joy's book. I I read that during the lockdown. <laughs> it's so amazing. It's such an amazing book. A lot. Did Alana's book come out? Yeah, at yeah, the same time? yeah, yeah, yeah. Alana's and Imogen's. Yeah. Aaron and Aurelian yeah. as well. We've got the book. They're all on this series. Like talks exactly. about this very yeah. thing. Like these companion pieces to get us through crisis. But I guess on a kind of more slightly negative, but also speaking to the political moment that we're in at the moment. Some of the some of the responses you had from the book, Alison, were not great, and the responses kind of proved your point. Yeah, basically, I was gonna <laughs> say that they threatened, right? Yeah, yeah. It, it literally, like it's 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 just mad, like how you literally wrote what they what they then did. <laughs> yeah, it's true. I actually, yeah, the first review um, that came out was by Julie Bindle in the Spectator. We actually printed that in the front of the paperback, you know, <laughs> kind of as a <laughs> slight yeah, form of trolling, yeah, yeah. um, because I, you know, I, it kind of just expressed really why why the book was needed. And uh, so I don't think she actually read it. That's the yeah, other thing. Mm, mm. But I had um, I had a lot of really nice responses as well. Yeah. Um, you know, I had a lot less um, negativity than Good. I was expecting, although some of it's come more recently, I think. I think some people didn't read it um, until a bit later and then they were, you know, shocked and appalled. Um, yeah, so it, it was it was really mixed. I mean, one thing that disappointed me was that a load, lots of white women read it and said it had kind of shaped their thinking, but then when Sarah Everard was killed the mainstream movement went straight back to demanding more police, you know, criminalise street harassment, make misogyny a hate crime. And I thought, you know, my goodness, um, the, these attachments to carcerality are so strong um, and this sense of being threatened is so powerful, you know, that you'll say Black Lives Matter and then you'll do that. When people engage in it, are they engaging on a, that deeper level or is it just that superficiality? So, for example, after football, we had Black Lives Matter, but after Football Monday people could see that veneer so mm. these things are so deeply ingrained is it about is it a question of people just reading books and being engaged how mm. do we get people to take these things seriously now i think that mm. one of the things that alison has done in one of her responses and i'll put it in the episode notes mm -hmm. is the blog that you wrote alison about that basically addressed women who had been victims of sexual violence and basically trying to present an olive branch like i understand why you're angry like i understand why you think these things are threatening but this isn't going to protect all of us and i do think that it's scholarship like allison's that help us break down the embeddedness because it brings into conversation like an understanding and compassion i'm not saying that i want to i don't want to present respectability politics around um, trans exclusionly radical feminists I don't want to do that but equally like we do have to find a way to support those that are on the margins but bring more people with us how do we do that it takes a lot a lot of work but it also takes a look I get why you're saying that but this ain't it mm. And I think mm -hmm. that that's what Alison mm -hmm. is really good at doing. Yeah, I was, I was, because I think with, I, you know, with something like the trans exclusionary feminist movement, I think people are in it for a lot of different reasons. And Money. there are obviously, you know, people who are so far gone 
that it's really quite impossible to reach the reach them. There are other people who are just basically grifters who have kind of seen it as a way to build up their own platforms. But I think there there is a kind of group of people in the middle who have been horrendously hurt, you know, by by men and who have had their trauma and anger channeled in the wrong direction. And I'm not saying that they haven't been victimized because that's the political whiteness thing, isn't it? If you point out that I'm privileged as a white woman, that means that I haven't been horrendously abused by my partner. Well, of course it doesn't. Of course it doesn't. And it doesn't mean that your life hasn't been shit, but it does mean that you haven't had to deal with racism. Um, And I think there's a kind of splitting that happens you know, in white feminism and especially in white feminism around sexual violence between, you know, perpetrators bad, victims good, um, which makes them unable to engage on any kind of intersectional level, you know, with the fact that there might be systems that they are actually benefiting from even while their life has been shit. It's really difficult. It's really difficult. And I think to respond to you, Tiso, I think probably there's been quite a lot of superficial engagement and there's been quite a few people who have said, Black Lives Matter, and then kind of gone on to demand the kind of street harassment criminalised and all the rest of it. But I have noticed that when I've done talks on this, the questions I'm getting are now slightly different to what I was getting before. So it's more, how do we do this? You know, how do we um, build an anti-carceral feminism focused on sexual violence, for example, is the, is the kind of question that people seem to be grappling with now. You know, what is the role, if any, of the legal system in dealing with harm? You know, what, what does the law actually do? Um, those kinds of questions rather than what about the rapists? What about the murderers? You know, which which doesn't seem to be where the conversation is at in some of the spaces I'm in, which I think is quite hopeful. Yeah. So I, I guess it's trying to point people in the direction of, of, of systems and structures. Right. And trying yeah. to make help them to understand how these play. But because these things are so big and mm. so, and because they're always moving and changing, it's hard for people to understand. And so when you kind of point him in the direction of an individual or it's it's this particular man or yeah. this particular group of men, yeah. it's easy to see. If you exercise this person, it's a short-term yeah. fix to this problem. Yeah, and, completely. And those, and those kind of languages, it's, it's, it's understandable for people. Mm. And taking on a system, yeah, it just seems it just seems so big. It does. It's mm. really big. It's really big. And I think that people... You know, I think it's a very natural response, first of all, when somebody's harmed them to Mm. want somebody's harmed us to want that person punished. You know, I think that's a very natural human response. So that's something we have to kind of attend to while we're thinking about more more constructive ways of dealing with harm. Um, But I think also it's a very natural response to want a quick fix Mm. to something and to feel really daunted by these huge systems. And I also think that the kind of neoliberal context encourages us to want a quick fix and encourages us to want some kind of rapid outcome as well. Um, And we don't have time to, you know, we're really missing the time to sort of sit down and think that through. I've noticed that in universities, you know, um, we don't have the time to sit down and think, well, what is this system that we're up against institutionally, but also in broader ways? And how can we kind of map back from that to things that we can do that aren't just legitimating the system? Because, you know, as you know, if you just get rid of one bad man, then it, it actually preserves the system um, mm. because it communicates the mes- message that all the system needs to do 
is to get rid of the bad individual and then everything will be all right. Mm-hmm. Um, and all of, the, all of the structures that enabled that person, all the people that enabled that person aren't held accountable. I mean, I think, you know, what would have happened if the first time Harvey Weinstein had abused a woman, she had told somebody and been believed and been taken seriously and an intervention had taken place, you know, would he still have been able to do all those horrendous things he did, which is not to absolve him of responsibility at all, but it's kind of thinking, about how could things be different you know what would it be like if we took these harms seriously and if we were all kind of looking out for each other a bit more i think anecdotally thinking about my own experience as a black woman in the past over the past year and thinking about the arguments you make in the book alison but also alongside of what happened after the black lives matter renewed uprisings in june and my concerns now, and again, this is anecdotal, like it's, you could, there's clearly there's going to be clear flaws in my analysis and people that say, oh, but what about this that's happening? And that's cool. But my fears now relate to the white women around me that I saw wanting to solve things and wanting to cure racism, quote unquote, cure racism over the summer and I remember sort of me, Tisa and George sort of we speak obviously on a daily basis saying to each other so oh my god the black lives still matter today yeah they still matter today they still matter today because you know it just kept going like black lives just kept mattering kept mattering yeah, yeah, kept yeah, mattering yeah, yeah, yeah. but then it did stop I think yeah, yeah. It, there was a date and it just stopped it's, it's, <laughs> so over. it's, it's, it's over. over it's over but then the combination of this authoritarian capitalist state that we're living in now we're still living through COVID-19 populist government right wing populist government And also seeing the growth in connections and affiliations between um, trans-exclusionally radical feminists and the far right. Mm. So my fears now, so thinking about all those things together and thinking about the white women that I knew that were looking to fix racism during uh, summer 2020, I feel like we are seeing a backlash to those things now and people saying, actually, I'm not down for this. Like, as in... So I feel like people were engaging on a level with some of the arguments you were making, Alison, about how our feminism is exclusionary, how it invokes whiteness, etc, etc. But I feel like there is now a pushback, again, I'm seeing in my everyday life, where more of the same is happening to Mm -hmm. what it did pre-BLM. But actually, there's like a known Um, emphasis to that like I know that I'm an individual that's going to benefit from this but I need to save my shit I need to save my Mm. skin and again like I think we saw it in the post Sarah Everard moment although there was some there's been some amazing coalition building Mm. some brilliant stuff that's been happening there is this I, I worry about some of the some of the politics that we're seeing amongst um women and also it's become multiracial as well like, as in, we're seeing much more. It's always been much What I mean by that is look at, like, things like GB News. Look at, like, who are the women mm. that are at the forefront of that. Like, there's always been people that um, want to benefit from racial capitalism. But there is something very insidious, I think, going on with do, do, do the feminist movement right now. I, right, so I like looking in the fringes online to see what's happening, right? Boom. Tito <laughs> looks at what's happening in the far right. But... <laughs> what I've seen, what I've seen is there's a knowing, un- there's an understanding of what feminism is. Mm-hmm. So when Hollywood does diversity really badly, they're quick to play up on the points. So they're quite. Sick. So for example, 
I just watched the most recent Marvel version, Marvel film, and it's quite. It's led by women. It's all this mainly a mainly a women a women cast, right? But the response by the far right has been very selective. Like women can't do bad things, and they said that's not real life, and very smart about it. So, are we talking here about there being an understanding? Yeah, they, yeah, they can. They There's understand. an understanding of what's happening. It's like, yeah, hmm. cool, but this is the side I'm going to pick, and the side I hmm. pick does actually very much harm migrant women. Hmm feel like there was a moment when people that were attracted to exclusionary feminisms were engaging in what this was doing and now I feel like there's so much pressures there's so much pressure from the state and everyday life that we're mm. going back to that but maybe even more so mm. again it's yeah. an anecdotal point yeah I get the point and I think that's probably right because it's I mean it's easy to say black lives matter isn't it yeah. it's easy to say it for you know a few days or week or however <laughs> many days they mattered for you know it's easy to have your instagram square um, yeah but when it actually comes to potentially giving up things that you yes. have um or divesting from systems that you benefit from that's that's kind of a different matter isn't it um so i think that that is kind of not surprising but disappointing in a way i yeah. mean you know, thank goodness for Sisters Uncut with yeah, the Sarah yeah, yeah. Everard thing because, you know, they were just amazing, you know, completely amazing. And they stopped it from being a complete kind of rollback of, of some of the discussions that were going on. I mean, what you were saying about the far right using feminism as well or kind of mm. seeing seeing it as a strategic thing, I think that's really interesting. And I think that has historical roots as well. You know, white men have always used women's rights in ways that suit them, you know, um, for, for whatever reason, um, that's back to the protection racket, isn't it? Yeah. You know, it's kind of the, it's the patriarchal protection racket is the threat of the stranger rapist that makes women seek the protection of their husbands who are actually more likely to abuse them. And the kind of the racial capitalist patriarchal protection racket at systemic levels, I think that protection racket mostly targets bourgeois white women and it basically makes us afraid in order to push us into the into the arms of the carceral colonial mm. state and make all kinds of other violence possible in the service of kind of protecting and perpetuating capitalism um and i think it's you know it's something that white feminism mainstream white feminism still hasn't fully understood but i think it's probably something the far right understands quite well yeah. um you know and it's a strategy the kind of separate the t from the lgb mm-hmm. is an actual kind of strategy um a conscious strategy that was kind of mapped out at a meeting um you know so they know exactly what they're doing they're quite good at using cultural studies so they'll use films point out like how women are trying to make claims for equality but somehow this doesn't map onto reality so you've asked for equality but yet you're kind of showing this a female a female dominated film that shouldn't how Mm. it shouldn't how it be or women shouldn't be powerful so like, they keep making a point of this. So if a woman is in an action film and she hits a man, they're saying, well, that's not that's not reality. They can't help. It doesn't work. Yeah. My point is that I'm seeing more within the mainstream, like the grifters that, Alice, that Alison was referring okay, to okay. in terms of um, the collaborators. So there are so much more visual representation on social media of women that will back this. Okay. Combina- and we're getting onto big stuff now, but the combination of like declining birth rate, yeah, declining birth rate love in the bit, West, love, love a bit of that, yeah, declining birth rate in the re- in the West, yeah, yeah, the lack of lack of people getting married. Wait, wait, wait. 
Infertility's higher as well, Infertility man. Infertility being me. higher. Yeah. They've got like this this cauldron of like and a, a madness that they can stir up and they can bring mm. with them the women that we need to be bringing with us that you referred to in your um, in your blog, Alison. No, that's right. I did an interview the other day, actually, where somebody asked me to characterise the two sides in the gender war in feminism. And I said, I can't because maybe it was at some point a good faith debate between feminists who had different beliefs. I'm not sure that it ever was, but now it's this whole mess of crap. You know, it really is. And there are so many people intervening in it for different reasons and with different interests in mind, um, more on the trans exclusionary side than the trans liberation side. But I, you know, I have to say I've seen some men intervene in it on the trans liberation side for, for what I think is, you know, probably not not quite the right reasons. Um, but, you know, the far right, they absolutely they know what they're doing. They, you know, they, they know that this is this is a place they can make gains. Um, and they know that this is a, I mean, it's divide and rule, isn't it? Um, and these feminists who are continuing to be platformed by, you know, spite, the spectator, unheard, the telegraph, the daily mail, you know, you just kind of think, what are you doing? You know, and any claim that they might have to being on the left, I think is, you know, completely shot now. Once you dig mm. deep with some of these feminists, like they just show themselves, it's like, oh, you're racist. Like the transphobia and racism just goes so hand in hand. And this is what we were saying on the episode of Alana. We asked her, and I don't know if you could speak to this as well, Alison, do they know what they're doing? In terms of the racist part Just the, of it? the both of it together. For us, it's so clear mm. how their harmful and hateful calls for debate around gender mm. are obviously harmful to the people that they're looking to debate about, but also very much cement and solidify negative racialization and racism as well. Mm. Like those, they're so linked and they must know that. They must do. I mean, they must do. It's a very strange situation. We know that it's so difficult to for for black women, for example, for black women to be seen as women or to be mm. seen as human is just mm. so it's it's a daily struggle to even get that. So of course if yeah. you're debating if you're saying that there's a debate around quote unquote allowed to be a woman, of yeah. course that's gonna implicate black people because we don't yeah. fall, we so regularly don't fall into the enlightenment versions of a human. Of course. You know, when you base your politics around some notion of real womanhood, yeah. you know, it's not just biologically essentialist, but it also excludes so many different categories of people. Yeah. Um, you know, black women, other women of colour, disabled women, yeah. you know, to a certain extent, lesbians. Yeah. Um, you know, because that idea, I mean, the idea of womanhood isn't really, as we understand it today, isn't really that old. Yeah. You know, I mean, it come and, and sex, sci the science of sex and the science of race were co-constructed yes. as part of the colonial encounter. It's not like we didn't have gender before. We did have gender before, but we didn't have an idea of two completely distinct biological sexes with gender roles that mapped on top. Um, and to kind of deploy that is to just is to deploy a colonial project. And you kind of think, how can they not? They must know. What's their counter to that? Maybe, mm. maybe that's the point. Maybe that's the point. Yeah. Exactly. So is that the yeah, point? Maybe that's the point. They're not looking to. I think. They're I think, not, I think no. maybe people think it's gone too far, right? 
And I think it's part of that postmodernism. Like there's too much. I think there's too many. Yeah. People just want, they want to go back to, I don't know. I don't know what they, they want, want to go, go back, to. back to hierarchy. <laughs> I don't know what they, they want, want to go back to. They want to go back to hierarchy. Yeah, but I think... And I think yeah. this, this... Do you know when I was trying to just explain what my fears were, my anecdotal fears? This is what... It, you guys have helped me map mm. it out. This is my... These are my fears that actually everyone knows what's happening and yeah. they're like, oh, we could pay with equality, but actually, do you know what? Yeah. Nah, but let's think, go back. I think people are taking... I think people are taking sides, right? People yeah, yeah, are taking yeah. positions. Mm. And we've got to the point where... It almost seems that these gulfs now are almost they're too big to be yeah. crossed. Everyone's taking a side, and each side wants to win. Sorry, sorry, sorry. <laughs> Why does my phone do that? It's on flight mode. It's on flight mode. Oh, that's Google. I'm gonna that, get that's Google. Google. Google are listening. The that's, far right. That's Google. Listening. <laughs> the far right listening. This is gonna be on Stormfront. <laughs> it is. I actually go on that website. No. I do. I do. Listeners, this is for the listeners as well because he so always brings up the far right, and this is a very um, compassionate and sympathetic argument for why I think T always brings up the far right. It's because T, you you watch them. Yeah, you watch them in the eight. You as a kid, you watch them from your window, yeah, yeah. organizing. Yeah. I think that there is a, they've been a consistent part of your life. Yeah, they've been consistent, and and the, the thing you think is like mm. on a serious note, they've been some of them have been my friends. They'll sit in my house. Mm. They'll have they'll, they'll eat with my mum. So it's interesting to see how these views and how they are with their with their mums with their sisters. And yes. it's not, it hasn't played out how it plays out in the media or how we play out in in theory. In in lived experience, it's different. Yeah. It's different. It's more nuanced. And how do you convey that? So mm. I spent most of my life with these people. You wouldn't view them as the enemy. <laughs> and and I don't think they even view themselves as the enemy. And so it's quite interesting. And, so, and I think this has played out in especially after uh, Sunday's football, how this played out in the media. People talk about themselves as, I didn't realise he was like like this. He was a normal person. And so people don't separate these things out. So when they're being misogynistic or racist, they don't see themselves that way. It's very few people that do see themselves that way. This is when it comes to, like, when they talk about themselves making moral distinctions, saying, like, I'm not a bad person, but yet they still think these ways. So when I'm talking about these people, when I'm looking to these people, trying to understand the system that sits behind it, the system that creates these logics, the kind of the cultural, the structural and all these things that sit trying to make them understand where they sit in this web. And yeah, that's so important, actually. And I think that kind of fits into some of the principles in the book, because mm-hmm. really one of the principles of abolition feminism is nobody is disposable, mm-hmm. not even the people that we hate and and find heinous. And I'm not saying hug a fascist and everything will be fine. <laughs> yeah, God, I need, uh, thank you for saying that, Alice. Was there. Not, <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> Don't hug any fascists. That's, that's not the way forward. But I think that, you know, if we do genuinely want to make the world better, these are the kinds of questions that we need to engage with. And mm. I think that some of the some of the backlash that I've had from kind of prominent white feminists for saying that the carceral system is not the answer to sexual violence kind of shows how they don't really care about reducing harm. They don't really care about stopping the violence. They just want these bad men punished. You know, um, they've got a very clear dichotomy between good and bad and they want the bad men punished and they want to move on. They're not thinking they don't have a kind of a project for changing society. Um, they're not thinking that far into the future. No. Um, so they're reactionaries. 
very, very much reactionaries, you know, and, it, you know, I mean, I was kind of shocked really by some of the more recent stuff um, in the Daily Mail. Like, how could you say that, you know, the police are not the answer to to kind of sexual violence? Because I, some of these people have been saying Black Lives Matter, you know, a, a few months earlier. And it just shows the strength of these attachments. Yeah. Um, that they have to the existing mm-hmm. system. The idea of a, a project, right? In this latter stage of capitalism, how do you think outside that? And mm. so this is why people are interested in those short wins. And they're yeah. not, and it, whatever wins for my group is okay. And the more we keep, we, the, more, the more this goes on, the, the deeper the divides become. Like it's all about haves and have nots. Like as long as my group's okay, I don't really care about your group. Exactly. Exactly. I think that's right. And I think that's, that is how we, we kind of engage. We seek those short wins, which I mean, sometimes the short wins might be okay, but sometimes the short wins just kind of reify the whole system, don't they? And they Mm -hmm. help the system to preserve itself. Um, But I do think, you know, yeah, it's about having a project. It's about having a slightly longer timeline. I mean, at the moment in my head, the timeline is kind of hundreds of years, Mm -hmm. you know, I mean, it took us hundreds of years to get here it might take us hundreds of years to unpick it and I won't be around. But if, you know, by the end of my life, I feel like I've done just a tiny, tiny yeah. bit but to make the world a tiny bit better. I'm going to quote, I'm gonna, feel good. I'm going to quote George here. George is always saying, give me dates. George is always like, what <laughs> date? George's like, give what me, date is freedom? Give me dates. He says, what's freedom day? And we're like, gee man, like what Alison just one said. Day, George, <laughs> when, <laughs> one day, George. It's freedom day, yeah. <laughs> Gaminda actually that said it to us and we really made us think but mm. following on from what you've just said one thing that I think Tito and I have realised over the past year is we it's not in our lifetime yeah, not in our but lifetime. that doesn't mean that we don't contribute to mm. freedom we contribute to it but yeah. we, won't, we won't feel it no, it's bigger and George, right. and George wants it now but we keep <laughs> on to tell it him now. but it's not it's <laughs> yeah. not happening but I guess it unfolds <laughs> in different ways it, like I guess there's no there's no quantitative answer. Like it, it unfolds mm. in ways that you don't know yet. Mm. So mm. you don't know what freedom will look like or what these things we're asking for will look like in the future, which mm. is, I guess, the most annoying thing, right? Mm. Exactly. Doesn't mean we can't help people in the here and now as yeah. well. And I think we have to have a balance, don't we, between kind of giving people as much of what they need as we can at the moment and keeping this broader project in mind. Mm. Um, and that's really hard. It's really hard when you're busy and you know everything's shit and you're worried about all kinds of stuff. But hopefully, if we work together and if we keep having conversations like this to kind of keep us clear-eyed about what it is we're doing, then then we'll move in the right direction. I agree. As a surviving sight, you might drop for Alison. Always. Always. <laughs> always. <laughs> Alison, thank you so much for joining us this Thank afternoon. you, Alison. Nice meeting you, Alison. Oh, it was so lovely. <laughs> it's so lovely. I've, I mean, I feel like I know you already, but um, yeah, this is kind of a half meeting. We'll have to meet in person. Definitely. At some point. Thank you so much for joining us, listeners, and we'll be back again next week. Bye. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to the T's and C's with Tiso and Chantel. You can now continue the conversation with us on Twitter and Instagram.